Hey, Jay. What's on your mind, Miles? So right now, I mean, not 2016, but where we are in continuity, Rogue is still sharing a mind with Carol Danvers. Right. Except Carol is also out there somewhere in her own body. Well, what's in Rogue's head isn't exactly Carol so much as Carol's absorbed personality and memories. There's still a Carol Danvers running around the Marvel Universe. Which one's the real one? That is an excellent question and also an existential puzzle we probably don't have time to crack open right now. A point. Okay, so the Carol in Rogue's head, she's not around anymore, right? Right. What happened to her? Died. Isn't she literally part of Rogue? Well, yeah, but when Rogue went through the Siege Perilous, they were split into two separate bodies. That's an unusually neat solution. Not really, because they were still running around on one person's worth of energy, and it was pretty obvious it wasn't going to be enough to sustain them both. They were going to slug it out, but then Magneto showed up and uh, straight up murdered Carol. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 108 of J and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So we are in the thick of it right now and getting thicker by the moment. That sounds kind of dirty, but still accurate. I mean, it's Inferno. It is kind of dirty. I guess that's true. Yeah, so this is our, uh, I guess depending on how you count, our third Inferno episode. Of five or six. I'm not sure. We're still kind of working that out. Yeah, but regardless, um, today we're going to be covering the first half of the X-Men and X-Factor portion of Inferno. We'll get to what that means in a moment. Right. Inferno basically divides into two major story arcs. Half of it is the Ilyana stuff. The other half is the Madeline stuff. We covered the Ilyana stuff the last two weeks in the Exterminators and New Mutants episode. And this week we're moving over to the other major plot, which is the Madeline Pryor stuff. So I guess we should probably give a bit of a recap because as we've mentioned in previous episodes, this is where everything, like everything, comes together. Previously on X-Men, and also X-Factor, I guess. Way back in X-Men 100, Jean Grey almost died saving the X-Men, but was reborn as Phoenix. Phoenix subsequently became corrupted by power, and the Hellfire Club, over time, became Dark Phoenix, and in a dramatic and romantic last stand, sacrificed herself on the moon. Shortly thereafter, Cyclops met a woman named Madeline Pryor, a pilot with a mysterious past who looked a lot like Jean. They fell in love and got married. After losing a fight for leadership to Storm, Cyclops quit the X-Men and he and Madeline had a kid. Meanwhile, in the retcon to end all retcons, the Fantastic Four retrieved and revived the original Jean Grey, whom the Phoenix had secretly sealed in a pod under Jamaica Bay to recover while it served as a somewhat homicidal stand-in. Since the X-Men were being led by Magneto at the time, the Fantastic Four decided to call Angel, who decided it'd be a great chance to get the band back together, and found at X-Factor a group of fake mutant hunters whose true mission was to find and protect newly emerged mutants. It turned out that the whole fake mutant hunter plan was actually the brainchild of Angel's best frenemy Cameron Hodge, who was quietly developing a human supremacist supervillain empire under X-Factor's nose. When he found out that Jean was alive, Cyclops made a beeline for New York, leaving Madeline and their newborn kid, Nathan Christopher Charles. By the time he tried to get back in touch with Madeline, she and the baby had disappeared without a trace. She'd actually been attacked by Mr. Sinister's marauders, who left her comatose in San Francisco before going off to slaughter the Morlocks. The X-Men found Madeline in San Francisco, then promptly went off to apparently sacrifice their lives fighting the adversary during the fall of the mutants event. But were then secretly resurrected by Roma, who sent them to Australia, where they, and Madeline, have been living ever since. Unbeknownst to the X-Men, Madeline has been secretly dealing 
dealing with the demons Sim and Nasty are both of whom are working to overthrow the Dark Child as ruler of Limbo and to open a portal that would allow them to conquer Earth as well. Meanwhile, back in New York, X-Factor kicked out Cameron Hodge and went public as mutants after a battle with Apocalypse that reunited them with the apparently dead Angel, who had actually been rescued by Apocalypse and transformed into the Horseman of Death until he broke from Apocalypse's control. Beast, who had previously reverted to mostly human form and subsequently lost most of his intelligence, was restored to his smart blue status quo. Unfortunately, Sim and Nastier's plans have continued apace, and Manhattan is now being invaded by the demon dimension of Limbo. Which brings us to Inferno. Right, so I think that may have been the most efficient description we've ever done. We should just do all of our episodes that way, and then it would be way shorter. Yeah, after we finished writing it, I actually checked, and it is nearly 200 issues in under 500 words. Well done, us. People keep asking if we're going to do a second recap episode. I like think we, we just number did. 52, and I feel like we kind of just did. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the structure of this part of Inferno, because it wasn't all that straightforward with the New Mutants Exterminator stuff. It is much less straightforward here. Yes and no. It's much, much more of a traditional crossover here. We have two series that are running in parallel, and then when they intersect, basically become alternating titles. So what we're going to do here is we're going to do Uncanny X-Men 239 to 241, followed by X-Factor 36 and 37. And after that, they'll just sort of interleave the uh, next two issues of each series. That'll right. be next episode. The five issues we're covering today are basically the ones that it takes to finally, after years, get the X-Men and X-Factor into the same room. Well, the same demonically possessed skyscraper in New York. But, you know, basically. As the case may be. So this is basically the first half of a two-parter. We're covering, you know, the first half of the Madeline story this episode, the second half in 109. So let's do a quick roster rundown before we get started. So who's on the X-Men, Jay? Batting for the X-Men, we have Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, Colossus, Psylocke, Havoc, Dazzler, and Longshot, with adjunct team member Madeline Pryor. And who's on deck for X-Factor, Miles? Well, in the X-Costume corner, we have Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and sort of Death-slash-Dark-Angel-slash-Warren Worthington III. He's mostly been brooding on his own and decapitating Cameron Hodge, but he's around too. Everyone needs a hobby. So I guess we have a lot of background there. Let's go ahead and dive into this chapter of Inferno. Uncanny X-Men number 239 is titled Vanities. It's basically a prologue to Inferno, and from the cover, you can pretty much tell who's going to be front and center here, because the cover reintroduces, in finally a central role, a villain who has been teased around the periphery of things for a very long time, the glam master of declamation himself. Mr. Sinister. How long have you been waiting to do that? I mean, minutes, if not years. (laughs) Uh, But I'm really excited because there's so many good Mr. Sinister quotes. There's so many good quotes in general that we're going to be talking about in this episode. But anytime I get to do my Mr. Sinister voice, I'm a happy dude. This cover, I want to talk about the cover because it's such a good one and it's such a creepy one and it's such a good intro to Sinister as a character. It's just him leaning in sort of giant with Madeline Pryor in his hand in her Goblin Queen get up and Havoc sort of sprawled at Madeline's feet. Oh, yeah. I mean, we are getting Sinister as Master Manipulator hardcore here. I made a Valentine out of this cover once. You did. It was romantic? It said, I made you a valentine because it's Mr. Sinister and he made Madeline. And- oh, oh Get geez. It? Get well, it? We're getting ahead of ourselves here. I oh. should never be allowed to celebrate holidays. <laughs> this is probably true. Yeah, anyway, this is really the first time we've seen Mr. Sinister in a focal role at all. He's actually only appeared as himself once before back in Uncanny X-Men 221. And we saw the Jean-Genier in brief Mr. Sinister drag during Madeline's interrogation on Genosha. Right, but this is really the first time that Sinister's had much of an identity other than the very powerful leader of the Marauders. And And what an identity it is. Oh, it totally is. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, as we often do, because I really love the way this issue opens, which is, it's got this almost like beginning of an 80s 
these comedy montage of all these different radio stations with little speech bubbles all over Manhattan, the Empire State Building in the background. It's a really Ghostbusters feeling opening. And actually, it's a really Ghostbusters feeling crossover in a lot of times. Like there are so many points where it's pulling from that. Yeah, I mean, it dives into the hellish nature of Manhattan that we've seen already in Exterminators and New Mutants from step one. In Exterminators and New Mutants, we don't really see Manhattan until it's fully corrupted. We don't really see the process. What we get to see play out in more detail in X-Men and X-Factor is the gradual corruption of Manhattan, how subtly it's happening around the edges, and how easily people are overlooking it at first. Yeah, like there's this family who's checking out the Empire State Building, you know, henpecked husband, annoying kids. They actually kind of remind me of the family from the Longshot miniseries in that one issue. And they get eaten by an elevator. Like it just kills them and it's got this giant face and blood comes out from under. And there's this, this like teenage janitor, you know, listening to his headphones, mopping up the blood, not really thinking about it. And I mean, he's also smoking a joint, so I assume he's not paying super close attention to his surroundings. Yeah, well, oh, hey, this was Comics Code approved. That was only tobacco in there, I suspect. It is definitely a joint. <laughs> yeah, well. But yeah, I mean, that's something we're going to see. Like, whether the kid noticed it or not, who knows? But we are going to see the citizens of Manhattan, and even the main characters themselves, just get a little bit more evil, a little bit more indifferent to the suffering of others as the series goes on, until it's just totally out of hand. It's not just the denizens of Manhattan we're going to see this happen to, but we'll get to that in a moment. For now, Mr. Sinister. Sinister gets his first on-page introduction, at least in this story arc, sitting on a Geiger-esque throne with a mass of crystalline X-Men action figures suspended in the air in front of him. Because here's the thing about Mr. Sinister in this issue. He is the guy who is pissed off that his favorite characters died, and now he's going to break all his toys. From the moment I learned of your existence, X-Men, I knew our paths would cross as adversaries. The Earth is growing too small, too crowded, for mutants and humans to possibly coexist. The day of Homo sapiens is done. It is past the time the species was removed from the evolutionary stage to make way for their betters. I always assumed you, humanity's self-appointed champions, even though they branded you outlaw and outcast, would be there to oppose me. It's said a man is measured by the quality of his enemies. You were the best. How I was looking forward to that ultimate test of skill and strength. But now, no thanks to me, you are dead. I feel cheated and somehow diminished. He is very apocalypse here, isn't he? He is, which, I mean, you know, from his M.O. to the fact that he just talks to himself occasionally in the third person. He's better at that than Apocalypse, though. He is the master of smug declamation. He totally is. And that's one of the things I like. Like, a lot of the time you have to sort of suspend your disbelief when a villain is just talking to, you know, the camera about their evil plans or talking to the person they have kidnapped about their evil plans. But Sinister's all about that. He just really wants, like, an audience, even if it's just through the fourth wall. Yeah, I totally buy that. Sinister is in it for the drama, hands down and absolutely. And right now, as I said, he is the kid who is mad, and so he's breaking all his toys. He's literally, he's taking these crystalline action figures of the X-Men, talking about each one of them a little bit, and then smashing it, because he's so pissed off that they are dead, and so he doesn't get to kill them. But one of the things I really like about the structure of this is that even though Sinister does think the X-Men are dead, we the readers, of course, know they're not. And so as he's giving his little monologue about each one, the comic cuts to what that X-Man is doing at their base in the outback in Australia. And one thing I like about that is that if you're just reading Inferno by itself, if you're just reading this like in trade or whatever, hey, here's an awesome introduction slash reminder of who all the characters are. 
So who are they? Who's he looking in on at this point? The first person he looks in on is Dazzler. And I kind of love this scene. Like, we won't go into detail on all these because there are a lot. You just love this scene because it lets you make Roadhouse references. It does because she's like dressed to the nines going into a bar that is very clearly the double deuce in my personal, extremely subjective opinion. Like, I have expect to see freaking Dalton in the back with his arms crossed nodding approvingly. But, you know, this is Dazzler. This is what she does. She likes going into these dangerous situations into the middle of, like, bar brawls and stuff with a bunch of surly, dirty men and, like, using her awesome voice to make them all, you know, charmed and chill and all paying attention to her. I'm not going to talk about the dudes in the bar much because they're really irrelevant, but I am going to put a picture of them up in the as mentioned because I think they are absolutely delightful. They really are. I want their story. Like, you know that one Star Wars book that went through uh, Jabba's Palace and had little short stories about every single minor character that was in the background? I want one of that for this. No. Oh, well, regardless, someone could. I'm just saying. Storm, meanwhile, is heading down to take a look at the Reaver's computers. This is normally Madeline's domain. She is the one who has been, for example, aggregating and distributing accounts of news from the outside world, which is going to be important pretty soon. And as a reminder, the Reavers were the cyborg jerks that used to run this base in the Outback before the X-Men took it over. As for why they had incredibly complicated machinery that can eavesdrop on everything on the planet, eh, I'm sure there were reasons. Okay, look, there are two reasons that fancy computer systems get developed. War and porn. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I might add, like, fancy video games, but, you know, it was the 80s. The video games weren't all that fancy. Speaking of porn, why the hell does the Reaver's computer system have, like, a set of super sexy pinup drawings of Storm in all of her outfits? Because Mark Silvestri did the art for the Reaver's computer system. Oh, Mark Silvestri. We need to talk about Mark Silvestri. Let's do that right now. So Mark Silvestri is a really good artist at this point, but he is starting to grow into a style that I can only describe as everything is sexy. It's a gradual thing right here. It's like he's becoming gradually corrupted along with the X-Men in Manhattan. The Goblin Queen and her outfit have sort of subtly influenced him. I get frustrated, though, because, again, he's a really solid draftsman. He can be a very expressive artist. He draws amazing action and amazingly good fight scenes. But this is the part in his X-Men run where I feel like we start losing a degree of expressiveness as, like, every third shot is framed from between someone's legs. There is a lot of that. That just really reminds me of the cover to, like, any given 80s teen comedy, though. Oh, God, you're exactly right. Or romantic comedy, like short red dress, legs, heels. And then, you know, male main lead on the ground looking up from between those legs. Yeah, (laughs) man. And it's frustrating. He's also starting to move stylistically in the direction that I think he's going to eventually sort of grow into, which is as one of the not exactly patient zeros or progenitors, but someone who very, very much blossomed into the image more is more style of line work. I'll agree with that. Yeah, and that can work really well sometimes. Like the way he draws monsters later in this arc, I think benefits greatly from that. It's a cool style. Yeah, Sylvestri is really good at texture. Actually, that's something that I find fascinating about this arc in general, because it's him and Walter Simonson doing the art. Sylvestri on X-Men, Simonson on X-Factor. And they're both artists who I like specifically for their approach to texture. Mm -hmm. And they do it in very different ways. And it's very, very cool seeing how those different approaches inform, especially the possessed New York. Anyway, going back to Storm and her sexy portraits in the computer, Storm is just sort of noodling around and she hits a random button. And suddenly Storm sees a bit from a news broadcast that she hadn't seen before. She sees two of her old teammates, Cyclops and Jean Grey. Now, we know that they've been running around with X-Factor. We know that Jean's been back for years. The X-Men do not know that. Storm, in particular, doesn't know that. And Jean was her best friend. Right. I think that's something that people really forget, which is that leading up to and during the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix sagas, they were incredibly tight, which was awesome. I mean, their friendship is one of my favorites the X-Men universe has ever seen. Storm flies immediately to find the other OG, all-new, all-different X-Men, 
on the team Wolverine and is shocked to discover that he already knew that Jean was back and never bothered to tell her. Yeah, and so she is furious. She just picks him up like hundreds of feet into the air with her wind and slams him toward the ground. Like, you know, why didn't you tell me? It's uh, pretty awesome. This passion, this is, I think, what we've been missing from Storm since the beginning of the Australian era, because she's been a little boring, honestly, since she got her powers back. And this is Aurora right here. The passion and the confidence and the willingness to call Wolverine on his bullshit, because really somebody has to. That is an official job among the X-Men. And so he explains himself, which is that, yeah, he knew she was alive since the mutant massacre, or at least he smelled a scent that must have been hers, but he knew it was impossible. Also, he had since been retconned to have had a star-crossed brief fling with her and for her to have been the one true love of his life, which further complicated matters. Yeah, that was from a classic X-Men, a backup story from Giant Size X-Men number one, actually. But you know, I think it's been earned enough since then with all of his weird feelings since he started catching her scent here and there. I guess. I loved her, Aurora. I lost her. End of story. Only now, it ain't over. Oh, Wolverine. I mean, tell us about it. It's never over. And so, you know, that's a thing. But meanwhile, other X-Men are doing simple things, which is to say beating the tar out of each other. Because that's what you do for fun. So this is Psylocke, Rogue, and Colossus. Of the three of them, Rogue and Colossus are the two brawlers. Psylocke traditionally is not. She's a telepath, but she has really fancy armor and apparently a mean right hook. That she does. And so she's fighting with Rogue, and Rogue captures her. Rogue wins and won't let her go. She just says, make me, when Psylocke asks. And Psylocke freaks out and psy-blasts the crap out of her. As we've covered before, Rogue had absorbed Carol Danvers' personality and memories long before joining the X-Men. And at this point, they are starting to manifest when Rogue is stressed. One interesting little thing here is that when Carol's in control of Rogue's body in this scene, she puts her hand on Psylocke's bare skin, like sort of comforting her as they're commiserating about their lives being weird. And it's fine. So it's implied that those powers, the lack of control... That's Rogue herself that can't control her powers. If somebody else was in control of her body, they totally could. It's kind of like how uh, versions of Cyclops, sometimes other people can make his powers work. When Emma Frost took over Iceman, she could make his powers much more powerful. So that leaves one X-Men left, and that is Havoc, who is engaging in the time-honored Summer's tradition of wandering off and brooding. Yeah, he's really good at brooding. He is. And he also com- about com- killing brood. I was going to say, he comes by it honest. And actually, that is in fact what he is brooding over this time. Because in one of the X-Men's more recent big stories, he killed a brood-possessed civilian. And he also, when his girlfriend Polaris showed up as the new malice of the Marauders, God, X-Men's complicated. Anyway, she was doing terrible things, and he, figuring there was no other option, tried to kill her. He didn't, but as he keeps telling himself, doesn't matter that I missed, only that I fired. Sinister mentions, incidentally, because he's still narrating this, even though he doesn't know that this is what he's narrating. Again, he thinks that the X-Men are dead. He makes an offhand mention of something that's going to be very significant later, which is that he's been watching Havoc since before his powers manifested. Yeah, so, you know, that's a thing. And that'll make much more sense as we continue on. Now, it doesn't take long for Madeline Pryor to meet up with Havoc, and we've seen this ongoing sort of increasing flirtation between the two of them over the last number of issues. I mean, you know, they've both lost relationships, their lives both kind of suck and didn't go in directions they were expecting them to, so I kind of buy it, but it's been getting more and more intense. And as we've seen Madeline Pryor talking to demons and getting darker in the background of various scenes in this book, it's getting a little troubling to we the readers. So you and I talked about this a lot before, about sort of the the Madeline and Alex relationship and how it plays out and how we respectively read it. And I think one of the things that I like most about it is that it's really ambiguous and it never really stops being ambiguous about how genuine it is. I mean, Madeline is very, very clearly manipulating him from very, very early on, but it seems to me like she also fairly clearly cares. 
Right. I mean, it's not pure manipulation. Otherwise, you know, she might have gone for a more powerful mutant or, you know, somebody who could help her out more. I'm sure the Summer's connection, the fact that Havoc's brother hurt her deeply is related, but I agree. I don't think that's it. I think there is a genuine affection there beneath all the demony evil stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think Alex represents to her, and we'll see her talk about this more explicitly later, a lot of taboos. In a lot of ways, pursuing him is a representation of a lot of lines that she's very consciously decided to let herself cross at this point. One of my favorite moments in this issue, and actually of the two of them, is after they hook up in this scene when he's asleep and she's leaving the room, and she tells him, Should I envy you your dreams, or would you envy me the fact that I have none? Another time, another place, who knows what might have been? Here and now, who can say what yet will be? I could save you, but it's best that I don't. Just the degree of kind of dispassionate decision-making Madeline has going on here, it's troubling. But again, she's been through so much, I really can't blame her. And we're going to keep coming back to that. Like, Madeline, the worse she gets, almost the more sympathetic she becomes. Sinister, meanwhile, has switched his focus to someone who he knows to still be alive, and that is Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, Scott and Madeline's kid. A game ends, another begins. The mistakes of one generation rectified in the next. For each piece that's broken, there's a better one forged. Time, as always, is on my side. I wonder, is this supreme self-confidence my fatal vanity? Time will tell. Short-term setbacks don't matter a whit. Because in the long run, Mr. Sinister will win. There's one other foundational piece of Inferno that we see before the issue closes. We're going a little bit out of order at this point, by the way. And that is Madeline having a conversation with Nastier, who is one of the demons from Limbo who she's been dealing with. The other is Sim, and he doesn't really figure into this part of the crossover at all. Now, at this point, what we learn is that Nastier has promised Madeline two specific things in turn for accepting the power he's giving her and helping him with whatever his endgame is. And the first thing she wants is for the Marauders to be found so that the X-Men can get revenge on them. Again, this is one of those gray Madeline places because it's really unclear. Like the implication from how she says it here is that she wants the X-Men to be able to have their revenge. But at the same time, the Marauders were the ones who captured and tried to kill her and were also centrally responsible for the dissolution of her relationship with Scott because she couldn't find him when she was, you know, unconscious. The other thing she wants is her son found. And why she wants this is something that is going to change over the course of the next four issues. Right now, she just wants him found. And speaking of things Madeline wants, the next time we see her is her dancing at the Rainbow Room at a Rockefeller Center with Alex Summers in a white tuxedo jacket, which I gotta say, he looks pretty good in that white tuxedo jacket. Let's talk about Madeline's outfit in this scene. Oh, outfits, yeah. Outfits. So Madeline is wearing a black dress. And that is the only thing that is consistent about her outfit, because in literally every panel that she appears in, it's a different dress. Alex doesn't notice. No attention is ever drawn to it. And the changes are way, way, way too radical and way too distinct to be coincidental. It also calls back to a couple very specific other dresses, both of which Jean Grey wore at different points in earlier X-Men comics. Yeah, there was the one she wore on that date with Scott right before the mission that took them into space where she ended up Phoenix. And there's the one she wears when she goes to the Hellfire Club for the first time. What it also reminded me of was um, James Jaspers back in Captain Britain, how his hat keeps changing. And that's sort of an example of how he's manipulating reality without even thinking about it. And manipulating not only reality, but the perceptions of the people around him. One of the things that's happening in the Rainbow Room is that we're seeing more and more of the corruption of Inferno. 
And Madeline is seeing more and more of it. We see her side-eyeing at it. And Alex is not. Yeah. It is just entirely lost on him. I should say, by the way, speaking of explanation, the Rainbow Room is actually a real place. It is a very, very fancy classic dinner club in New York City, closed down for a while, is now reopened, and was most famous for having a revolving dance floor, which strikes me as a really bad idea. I guess it depends on how fast it goes. If it went really fast, that would be a terrible idea. Oh, hilarious, though. I wish that, man, they they didn't do anything with that in Inferno, and they really should have, because it would have made a ton of sense. People being flung out the windows. It's right there. I mean, they have the whole club to themselves, so there's that. Oh, no, they don't quite, because there is someone else there. The M Squad has shown up. Oh, oh man. The M Squad folks, I love them so much. They're basically like even more science-y Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mentioned that there are a lot of Ghostbusters riffs in Inferno, and we saw some earlier ones too in Exterminators and New Mutants. But the M Squad are definitely the most overt because, yeah, they're just straight up the Ghostbusters. Although uh, not all of them are male, which is cool. Although all of them are white, which is less cool. So they're crypto Ghostbusters. Yeah. Now, they're not going to be super important in this arc. But they will actually show up again in Jubilee's first appearance, so I'm going to talk a lot about them then. But in the meantime, we have a lot of other stuff going on, so we'll just gloss for the moment. And because it's X-Men, between showing up here and there, they're going to die. But, you know, it's Inferno. A lot of people die in Inferno. Yeah, they're the second group of characters we see eaten by an elevator. And Havoc totally doesn't notice. This is one of the instances of him just being oblivious to all the evil stuff going on with Madeline. Madeline is... You know, again, and I mentioned the costume shifting. One of the ones she shifts into briefly, by the way, is her Goblin Queen outfit. Oh, should we talk a little about that outfit? We have before, but I kind of feel like it bears oh, repeating. God. How was it that Elizabeth described it as? Weaponized underboob? Elizabeth Alley described the Goblin Queen as Queen of the Underboob, yeah. She is. Okay, so I literally cannot read Inferno without just compulsively tugging my shirt down every few seconds. Because, like, this outfit is... It's really bad, y'all. It's really bad. It's implausible in a lot of supervillain ways. It's hypersexualized in ways that I don't buy in context of Madeline as a character. Yeah, her using her sexuality in a weaponized sort of way, I get. But why would you wear something like this? Like, it's this sort of big cape that goes over the tops of her breasts, kind of diagonally down, but she would just flop right out, wouldn't she? I assume that either there's a lot of double-sided tape or it's part of her power set. Ah, yes. It's a telekinesis. You can make that work. I have seen people cosplay it really, really spectacularly well. There's actually a couple who cosplayed as Madeline and Sinister. Oh, that's kind of awesome. Which is pretty tremendous. Let's see if I can find a link to drop. So it is technically physically feasible. It's not an outfit that fits the character. There are characters and directions I could see this going. Like for her, though, I want to talk about this more once we get to Sinister specifically. But Madeline's arc and Madeline's arc as a villain is all about agency. It's all about power. And I just don't see her doing the sexy tatters thing. I mean, it's certainly iconic. It's certainly recognizable. Somebody says Goblin Queen. That's what you think of. I do, however, totally buy her dressing Alex in the sexy tatters later, because that does fit with the powerful supervillain and with the role that she's very deliberately stepping into and inhabiting. It's true. Yeah. Because he actually gets a matching version of the outfit, which is kind of refreshingly equal opportunity, at least. Now, speaking of ridiculous clothing, meanwhile, in the Outback, Rogue is skating down the Outback street with Longshot, like flirting super hard with him. And she's wearing this incredible, like, shiny gold, it is so very 1989 skating outfit. It's, like, glittery and, like, producing sparks in the panel. Okay, it's hot pants, a bandeau top, matching LeMay elbow and knee pads, matching gold roller skates, and what I think is supposed to be a helmet but looks like some kind of fancy ceremonial headdress the way it's drawn. It's pretty amazing. There's a lot going on here. It is intensely late 80s. It's also intensely Dazzler. 
And that's the thing. Rogue has stolen Dazzler's clothing in addition to skating around with what Dazzler perceives as her man. And so, of course, there's a big zap of light from off panel and a furious Allison Blair. Does the way Sylvester draw Dazzler totally remind you of Penny Pretty from Buckaroo Banzai? Oh, yeah, you're totally right. She looks just like her. I never I, thought about the that. Re- it's, it's especially intense in that red dress. But it really yeah, is. Like, it's, I could not get that out of my head once I started seeing it. Yeah, but it's this big love triangle fight. As Rogue says, Excuse me, all to blazes, sugar. I thought he was a person, able to make his own choices about who to hang out with, not private property. Longshot is horrified at the proprietary notion of monogamy, and he and Dazzler have a huge throwdown about it. The fight also busts into where the less conflict-inclined members of the X-Men are hanging out. That is Colossus and Psylocke, who are up in Colossus's room where he is painting Psylocke, or sitting down to paint her. He's painting a picture of her. He's not actually painting her. No, that would be kind of awesome, but no. <laughs> and yeah, there's just this big crash because, of course, or actually, I should quote, there's just this big thump, wham, bam, ouch, snap, thud. And a really great panel of Colossus just face palming. It's pretty great. I <laughs> use that panel on the internet a lot. <laughs> Legit. And I remember when we were talking about this, Jay, you pointed out that in this, Colossus and Betsy kind of come off as the innocents of the group. I think they almost come off as like the grownups of the group. It's both. They are the characters who are kind of removed from the drama and who are also kind of in some ways removed from the dynamic of the rest of the team at this point. Like there's a lot going on between Storm and Wolverine and between Dazzler and Rogue and Longshot. You know, Havoc and Madeline sort of have their own thing. Colossus is very, very much still grounded in his old life. Like that is where his head is at these days. And Psylocke, after spending a long time trying to figure out what her place is on the X-Men, is again still just kind of floating. Like the two of them end up being the team grownups, but they're also kind of the moral compasses of the team in ways that I think Doug Ramsey ended up being a lot in New Mutants, for instance. Yeah, with sort of uh, Colossus as the lighter and Psylocke the darker of those compasses. Have Colossus and Psylocke ever been a thing, like a couple? Because I could totally see it during this era, but I don't think it ever actually played out on page. I don't think it ever happens, no. But regardless, so as all of this, you know, interpersonal, goofy, hijink drama is going on, Havoc is down below checking out the Reaver's suspiciously advanced computers and realizes that the program he and Maddie wrote, they found the Marauders. I should note, they're back from their date now, and Madeline has gone off on her own. This is where we are going to break a little bit from the reading order of Inferno. We're going to follow the X-Men in sort of one block, and then we're going to go back and follow Madeline through the same period. So the X-Men have been running from slash going after the Marauders since the Mutant Massacre for literally years now. Like all of the plot threads that are going on, pretty much all of them were kicked off by what the Marauders did in the Mutant Massacre. That's because the Marauders are the worst. They are the worst. And so the X-Men go off to where they now realize they are for revenge. And it's very explicitly for revenge. This isn't about capturing them. This isn't about making things safe. This is about getting them back. The last time several X-Teams tangled with the Marauders. And Thor. Several X-Teams and Thor tangled with the Marauders, not several X-Teams tangled with Thor and the Marauders. Thor is soundly on the side of the X-Teams in this conflict. Some of the Marauders were killed, and they're all back now. Yeah, Riptide, Prism, and Blockbuster definitely all died, and here they are. And in fact, one of the Marauders, Scrambler, sort of jokes around about them, you know, having as many lives as a cat or whatever. This is where we start realizing Sinister can just clone the Marauders pretty much indefinitely as far as we know. Man, can we talk about Scrambler? Scrambler is my favorite Marauder, and I don't think we really covered him very extensively previously. So the Marauders are all super glam. They're all about fancy one-shoulder costumes and being ridiculous and shiny, except for Scrambler, who looks like a freaking exchange student from Riverdale High. The Riverdale Marauders. Right, yeah, like somewhere there's like a super glam evil villain running around Riverdale in the after-school Marauders Club. I don't want to join that club. I feel like you'd get killed by the X-Men and Thor a lot. But you'd just get cloned back. Oh, that's true, by Principal Sinister. 
Okay, Archie and X-Factor crossover uh, alternate universe, somebody make it happen. Make this fan fiction happen. I mean, Archie has crossed over with the Marvel Universe before. That's true. He went up against the Punisher once. But we digress. Significantly. So yeah, the X-Men do indeed find the Marauders and they get into a great big fight. The Marauders realize that, you know, having been surprised, they're kind of outgunned. So they bust a hole to the surface from the Morlock tunnels where they've been hiding and see what's become of New York. Which is to say Inferno. Marauders and X-Men alike are absolutely shocked by this, but that doesn't stop them from continuing into a good old-fashioned murderous brawl, which spills over into the pages of X-Men 241. And I love the opening here because, as usual, Claremont's narration is just wonderful. Meanwhile, half a continent towards a dawn which may never come. The half a continent in an East difference is comparing to Nebraska, which is where Sinister and Madeline are currently hanging out, because where else would you go be a supervillain, honestly? It's true. Well, you know, Sinister's got his orphanage. Dude, there is not a lot to do in Nebraska. But there is a lot to do in Possessed New York. Like, for instance, you could go to an amazing shop called Rats Are Us. I would go to a shop called Rats Are Us in non-possessed Portland if such a shop existed. Rats are delightful. They are. But yeah, that's what we're seeing in Manhattan here. I mean, we talked a lot about this in the last couple of episodes, but New York has just been changed. Everything is dark and weird and cartoonish. My friend Amanda has pet rats. They're named after soup. Well, there you go. Maybe she got them from Rats R Us. I really hope so. Yeah, I mean, there's just this great big brawl, and it's quickly broken up by one of my favorite single panels in the entire crossover as these giant, like, ATST-looking demon things with, like, brood-textured skin and giant fangs walk up through the mist, being ridden by, like, evil demon Viking police officers. Like, this is where Sylvestri is just a beautiful, beautiful artist. Okay, these guys look super, super familiar to me, the police car demons. I don't know where from. I don't know if it's just because they're evocative of a couple different things or if they're actually homage to something. I'm going to stick one of them up in the as mentioned. Listeners, if you can place these more specifically, let me know because this has been bugging me for like two weeks now. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we see more of this sort of possession. We see a hydrant beating up a dog for revenge with its new like little thin arms. We see a sign that says, no living, 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. Like, it's that same kind of dark slapstick that we've seen in New Mutants. And what we see as sort of an ongoing thing in the background of this is a mailbox eating a guy for mailing a letter with insufficient postage. I really like the way Possessed New York plays out in X-Factor and X-Men, because in New Mutants and Exterminators, it's kind of front and center. It's the focus of a lot of the action. In X-Men and X-Factor, the possessed inanimate objects are more background. They're just sort of stuff that's happening incidentally as the X-Men and X-Factor focus on the big picture. And like those little incidental details, yeah, they're funny, but they're also just really creepy. The the cartoonish horror of them as compared to the, you know, super person-based drama playing out is great. Yeah, although that doesn't stop the characters from interacting with them some. So like, for instance, Wolverine sees that this mailbox has eaten a person and cuts it open, sending letters spilling out, but no person. But he then sees the dude trapped in a postage stamp on the letter he was trying to mail, yelling, help me, help me, in little speech bubbles. And the X-Men, for the most part, with one exception, take this totally at face value. They're acting like everything is just business as usual. Only Colossus really sees anything wrong with this picture. Storm, I do not understand. Mailboxes attacking people? Police demons. Marauders we have slain, risen from the dead. This is madness. Of course, little brother. How else would you describe life in New York City? And I mean, part of me was like, oh, is Storm just making a joke? But then I started to realize, no, the X-Men have been getting darker and darker ever since they got to Manhattan. They've just been getting a little more murderous. Like, in the fight, at one point, Havoc and Dazzler are continuing their usual rivalry that they have. And, like, just getting murderous. Dazzler says to Havoc, Havoc, careful! Your plasma beam's so powerful it can't do anything but kill. That's the idea, Dazzler. 
And this is like an issue after we saw Havoc last agonizing after over having accidentally killed someone who was brood infected, like someone who was already irrevocably doomed and essentially dead. Yeah, so this is a major shift. And I mean, we've certainly seen the X-Men get darker. We've seen them talk a lot more about killing over the last couple of years as things have gotten more hardcore. But this is above and beyond. Yeah, now they're doing it and they're doing it really, really casually. Dazzler, meanwhile, is getting more and more obsessed with taking a central role, center stage. And Colossus is really appalled by this. He can feel something trying to get into his head. He can feel those same impulses, but he's in steel form and that gives him a degree of insulation from apparently evil, among other things. Uh, We've already seen that it protected him from the techno-organic virus. Now we're seeing it protect him once again from sort of the demonic taint that's seeping into the other characters. And you know, I didn't make the connection until rereading this issue, but the armor that Ilyana's wearing in her sort of final form before she goes all energy light child reminds me a lot of Colossus's techno-organic steel and really her soul armor in general does. And that was basically its purpose, to provide a barrier between good and evil, light and darkness. And Colossus just kind of has that built in. Speaking of Ilyana, actually, Colossus is interrupted from his reverie by a group of the soldiers from the right, the smiley-faced power-armored soldiers whom she had sucked into limbo back in the Bird Boy saga. And now they're all techno-organic demons themselves, and Colossus manages to catch one and basically interrogate it, and it freely gives up the story, I guess it took some classes from Mr. Sinister, of what's going on in New Mutants, you know, with Ilyana having this rebellion going on in limbo, and struggling to stay afloat and to fix things. Colossus responds by killing it. He just pulverizes it. The other X-Men cheer him on. He's horrified by what he's done. He's horrified by their response to what he's done. And he decides that he's really had enough of this half of the crossover and he is going to go fuck off to guest star in New Mutants. Probably not a bad plan. So as all of this is going on, as the X-Men themselves are getting a more demonic, ragged appearance, grinning maniacally, wolverine with tusks, their costumes all spiky. Oh man, I have mixed feelings about Sylvester, but there are a few things that he just nails in this crossover. And one of them is the evil versions of the X-Men. Like his ability to draw like the subtly evil grins and just the faces that aren't quite right. And characters who are still mostly on model, but just sort of slightly corrupted from that is so good here. Like it adds so much to the atmosphere and it does so much storytelling. Yeah. And I mean, Claremont's dialogue, of course, Claremont's always worked very well with Sylvestri. So like when Colossus kills the right soldier, Storm just turns to him and says, Splendid Colossus. That is the way to deal with such arrogant toads. Do you know what happens to an arrogant toad when it's struck by arrogant lightning? Welp, you ruined Inferno. Oh, I ruined Inferno. That was a Joss Whedon line. Did you know that? He wrote that line. I did know that. So here's the thing about that line. May I digress briefly? (laughs) That's all we do. That's not true. That's much of what we do. I think that bit of dialogue, just as written, gets a really unfairly bad rap. Oh, yeah? Like, yeah, it could be a pretty good comic beat with different delivery. Because if she did the, you know, the dramatic, you know, what happens to a toad when it gets struck by lightning, hits it with lightning, and then just said sort of super casually over her shoulder, same thing that happens to anything else. Like, that would have worked really well, and it would have been, that's a very Joss Whedon-feeling beat. And I suspect that was what was intended, and I don't know, you know, man, I have ragged on Halle Berry's performance in those before, and she's a good actress, and I wonder what went wrong, and how much of it was her, and how much of it was direction, and how much of it was the fact that she just didn't have a lot of material to work with. So by the time you get to lines like that, she's been pretty much established as having no distinct personality as a character, and just, oh, God unfortunate. Don't screw it up, Apocalypse. We're counting on you to make Storm interesting again. She deserves so much better. Go Alexandra Ship. So yeah, anyway, that's what the X-Men are up to. They're largely corrupt. Colossus has gone off to a different book. A long shot randomly gets his soul eaten by Nastier. That'll be a big deal later. Yeah, that just sort of happens casually. 
And after eating Longshot's soul, Nastier clues the X-Men in on his endgame, which is to meet up with and then do the same to Madeline Pryor, which brings us back to what Madeline's been up to since last we looked. Now, the last time we saw her, she and Alex were getting back from their fancy Rainbow Room date, and she immediately took back off again. And where she is right now is at the grave site of Jean Grey, who much of the world still believes dead. And she's just getting increasingly furious as she has these visions, these flashbacks of Scott Summers saying goodbye to Jean, of Scott Summers marrying her as she just yells, liar, liar, and blows up the tombstone. Unfortunately, Jean's parents have also chosen this particular moment to visit their daughter's grave, despite the fact that they know that she's back and alive. And seeing a mercurial redhead who is physically identical to their daughter in yet another improbable outfit, their first entirely reasonable question is, wait, is that Jean with yet another identity? Which I kind of love. Yeah, what I don't love as much is that Madeline turns to them and melts their flesh off and turns them into demons, kind of like what Nastier used to do to police officers and stuff. But it is gruesome and it's sad because, man, the poor grave. Their lives are terrible, and now they're demons. Right? They just do not get a break, and do not get a break, and do not get a break, and then get murdered by the Shi'ar. It's pretty rough. They do obviously survive this, so they can later get murdered by the Shi'ar. So much of Madeline's anger and so much of her sense of displacement is focused on Jean. This is foreshadowing, and it's massive, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, it's really sad, too, because Jean Grey is, like, one of the only people in this whole system that hasn't screwed Madeline over. Well, she kind of has in one very specific way, but it was very much an accident. But anyway, at this point, as Madeline vows revenge, Nastier, everyone's favorite horse, bird, lizard, whatever demon, appears. Bold words, Goblin Queen. With power to match and will to use it. Poor Nastier. Did you believe me some toy fit only for your pleasure? Don't bother denying it, Demon Lord. Your thoughts are pitifully transparent. Who are you? My own woman. And that's basically Madeline Pryor in a nutshell right there at this point. What Nastier does do, though, is take her to the orphanage in Nebraska, because, of course, he's been charged to find her son. Now, we know, having read this, that Nastier already stole her son from this place. She doesn't know that. She finds the weird, fancy sort of pod crush that he had been in. But as she sees it, she has the flashback to something else, which is her in a similar setup in a pod labeled Mode 1, Trial 1, Line 1, Primary Replicant Research, Codex Ident, Madeline. And so she's understandably freaked out and furious and demands that Nastier tell her what's going on or else she's going to tear him apart. And Nastier demurs and redirects Madeline to someone else who has shown up at the same time, the guy with the actual answers, who is a tall gentleman dressed in fancy tattered super glam black with a diamond in his forehead. You have a name, John? Most refer to me as Mr. Sinister. But you, Madeline, my pride, my first and foremost joy... You may call me Father. It would be really funny if she called him that, but with that exact intonation every time. Or just, you know, whatever, Dad. That'd be pretty great, too. Now, Madeline will have none of this because she recognizes Sinister. She realizes that he is the Marauder's leader, and she immediately attacks him with the demons who had been the Greys, who are now sort of her right-hand demons and telekinesis that she suddenly has access to. She tells the Grey demons to take his heart, to which Sinister responds, 
Regrettably, Madeline, Sinister has no heart. I should say, we are going to do a ton of dialogue this episode, and we've been already. Some of that is because it's relevant, and some of it is because Mr. Sinister subsists on a diet of pure scenery, and he's so fun, and all of his lines are so fun. So, yeah, you're going to have to deal with that. They're pretty good. But, yeah, he uses his power then, his powers, which are very ill-defined at this point, to conjure these giant chains to hold her in place, and they burst into flame and hold her in agony. You were always a rebel, Madeline. Never believing what you were told, determined to learn everything for yourself, regardless the cost. Tell me, has it been worth the pain? The grief? I have nothing to do with you, monster. I'm a normal person with normal parents and a normal past. Well, you know, except for the part where she's been making deals with demons. Ah, you know, normal deals with normal demons. And he challenges her at this point to summon up one memory from her past, and she's got one. She has one on hand. Specifically, it's the time that she and her best friend, Annie Richardson, were playing in the street by their parents' house, and Annie darted out to get a ball that had gone into the street and was hit by a car. Madeline ran to her, and suddenly her telepathy kicked on in Annie's dying moments, and she experienced Annie's death alongside her. Except we've seen that memory before. And it's not Madeline Pryor's. That's Jean Grey's memory. That's how Jean Grey's powers first manifested. Sinister points this out. That is Jean Grey, and specifically that's what kicked her powers on, and I figured that I would go get her at this point. But Xavier got there first, so I cloned her instead, because, you know, Mr. Sinister is a problem solver. He's playing her specifically as having been his protege in the same way that Jean was Xavier's, except the significant difference is that Jean was kind of legitimately Xavier's protege, creepy quasi-romance notwithstanding, and Sinister literally just produced Maddie and raised her to program her to fall in love with Scott Summers and have his kid. Well, what's interesting is that he didn't actually raise her because she was mostly comatose up until the exact moment that Dark Phoenix died on the moon. She was completely comatose. He expected her powers to kick in at puberty, and when they never did, he decided she was a failed experiment, except at the second that Dark Phoenix died, there was an explosion in the lab, and Maddie basically leapt up yelling, Scott, fire, life, incarnate, now, forever, Phoenix. And so her first memory was of her love for Scott that led Dark Phoenix to sacrifice herself on the moon. She has been born for this exact purpose. She never had a chance. She never had a choice. Yeah, that is one of the most screwed up things about Scott and Madeline's relationship for me in terms of power dynamics and the way it's eventually retconned is that she is someone who has been literally conditioned and programmed from creation for the express purpose of falling in love with this one person. And not only that, but had that reinforced by the thing that caused that specific moment, which we're going to get to that later when we find out a little bit more about the more complex parts of Madeline's actual origins and her relationship to Jean Grey. Sinister explains, basically, I just thought that a genetic union between Jean Grey and Scott Summers would produce a really exceptional offspring. Couldn't have Jean, so I made you. So that's basically why you exist. Yeah, thanks for that. Gonna kill you now. And he is going through this in a lot of detail. And again, villain monologuing doesn't always read as credible. But with Sinister, I 100% buy it. This dude is so smug. And he just really wants you to know how hard he has worked for this moment. And that's one of the reasons it's so satisfying when Madeline is able to break free. I don't belong to you, Sinister. I won't be ruled by you. I won't be condemned by you. And the flames grow and the chains dramatically shatter as we get just more and more close up onto Madeline's face. Surprise. It appears your devices have limits. And I don't. Impossible. If you say so. What price glory now, Sinister? 
And just as this is about to get super dramatic, Nastier shows up with Nathan Christopher, with the baby, with Madeline's son. Man, babies ruin everything. And this is where we see Madeline make her choice. Here is the culmination of all your machinations, all Scott Summers' hopes and dreams, all that represents my humanity. In one stroke, I make it dust. Your ambition is a world to rule. In one stroke, I make it ashes. I abjure life, father, and give myself over whole and unreservedly to the fire. An inferno that will consume you all. And I gotta say, when you've been dealt a hand as shitty as Madeline's, deciding, fuck it, I'm gonna burn the earth, I'm gonna leave nothing but dust... There's a certain catharsis to that, you know, even for the reader, even though Madeline is the villain of this story in a lot of ways, man, she never stops being sympathetic. She is the antagonist. I do not know that I would characterize her as a villain. She is very much the Medea of X-Men. To me, at least, that casts her in an almost entirely sympathetic light and role. Actually, I want to take a few minutes to talk about Madeline Pryor and the Goblin Queen and her arc. I've talked a lot about what I love about Jean Grey being how hard she will fight for agency, that she absolutely refuses to give in to predetermination or fate, that if you tell her she is destined to have something and she wants it, she'll push it away at that point. Ironically, that's a lot of the same of what I love about Madeline Pryor. She is a character whose struggle ultimately isn't for power so much as it is for agency. She wants to be her own master, whatever it takes. Her progression is a byproduct of editorial fiat and the return of Jean Grey, but it's one of the best I think, most naturally written and most credible progressions to villainy that I have ever, ever seen in the next book. What it kind of reminds me of is the way Chris Claremont himself is handling the plot, because it wasn't his call to have Jean Grey come back from the dead and derail all of his plot lines. And so he literally just burns down the world. (laughs) Exactly. See? So all of this is going on, leading up to horrible, horrible things. In the meantime, though, we have another team involved in this part of the crossover, that being X-Factor. And this brings us to the X-Factor part of Inferno Part 1, X-Factor 36 and 37, which open with one of the best tone-setting splash pages I've ever seen, in which a hot dog stand attempts to eat Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, as Iceman and Beast try to save the kid and the stuffed tiger. And it's one of those things where it's not exactly them, but it's very clear what it's referencing. It's them. And that's one of the things I really love about Inferno is we get to see Mark Silvestri, Brett Blevins, and Walter Simonson all do their own versions of possessed New York, of possessed objects, of this cartoony demonicness, and it's so much fun. Now, from the start, the New Mutants, the Exterminators, and the X-Men have a personal stake in Inferno. X-Factor does not yet, or at least does not realize that it does. X-Factor are basically being the friendly local superheroes. They're trying to deal with a possessed New York. They're trying to save civilians. And with them, as usual, is intrepid reporter Trish Tilby, who is basically the April O'Neil of X-Factor at this point. She shows up for pretty much everything. Like, I don't think there were other reporters in New York. There's like Peter Parker and Eddie Brock and Trish Tilby, and that's it. Do you think that she's planted a tracking device on one of them or something? I think maybe, yeah. She's got like this little tracking device on Iceman's shoe or something. That's how she knows where to go to get the good scoops. Unfortunately, the Iceman doesn't actually wear shoes, so this just doesn't work at all, puts her back at ground zero. But fortunately, she can just follow the trail of destruction they leave. She can indeed. Although they've learned to use doors by this point. We're very proud. We are. That was right around the time they went public, I think. Yeah. And there's kind of an interesting series of plot events. As Iceman and Beast go and do superhero stuff, they deal with a possessed subway car, etc. And Trish comes to terms with the fact that the man that she was kind of falling for, this gentle giant that was Hank McCoy when his intelligence was mostly missing, when he didn't have blue fur, now he seems to be a different person entirely. 
Yeah. And X Factor starts out in Frino. Again, you know, I mentioned it's sort of business as usual for them in kind of their most buoyant state. Like, yeah, it's like a super cheerful soap opera involving the, demon trains. Well, it's, it's the Hank and Bobby show. They are solving crimes. They are being good bros. Iceman, having effectively destroyed Beast's romantic prospects earlier, is now helping him get back in Trish Tilby's good graces, which he manages to do through a series of mutual rescues on a possessed subway train. Yeah, it's very Indiana Jones and Marion in a lot of ways I really enjoy. Oh, man, I was going to make a joke about dysfunctional relationships, but I actually don't know which of them is more so. So things are going pretty well for Hank and Bobby. They are not going as well for the other members of X Factor. The last we saw Angel, he was walking out of the Wright's headquarters after decapitating his former best friend, carrying the body of his once true love. And he is in a dark place right now. He really is. His life is pretty terrible. I mean, everyone in Manhattan is kind of by definition in a dark place right now, but... And it's made only darker by the fact that Nastier, who's been watching basically all of the characters in the Marvel Universe, as near as I can tell from the tie-ins... Ooh, do you think he has, like, the supervillain monitor wall? I think he totally does, yeah. And he does the sort of Dr. Claw, you can just see one arm thing that, like, Eric the Red did that one time. It's probably a magical monitor wall, so it's like a scrying mirror wall or something. I suspect the monitors are very fleshy. Everything is fleshy in Inferno. Nastier figures, okay, well, I have Madeline in my clutches. Scott and Jean are too pure to corrupt. What about this angel guy? And so he basically shows up and mocks him. I mean, he's already basically a supervillain. But Nastier wants to make him even darker. And so he talks about how his wings have their own kind of evil. There's no way Warren can stand up to them. And Warren decides, screw this. I could mope over my dead best friend and dead girlfriend and ruined physical form and everything in my life being terrible. Or I could kill this motherfucker. I have friends in Manhattan and responsibilities. Before I allow you to harm any more of those I love, I will unleash my evil upon you and see you utterly destroyed. And that's kind of going to be Warren's jam for a while. He knows there's evil within him, but he wants to unleash it against greater evil, fighting fire with fire, basically. Fighting fire with poison flechettes. I love the word flechettes. Flechettes. So that's what Bobby and Hank are up to. That's what Warren's up to. In the meantime, Scott and Jean are heading back toward Manhattan. Now, as we recall, the last time we saw them, Jean was in psychic connection with Nathan Christopher, with Cyclops' son. Specifically, they were at the orphanage, where Madeline Pryor and Mr. Sinister are now hanging out, when the demons showed up and kidnapped all of the kids there. They got into a knockdown, drag-out brawl with the demons and also with Nanny and the Orphan Maker, who are a third and largely unattached party in this entire drama, and will not be back for a while. Yet. Jean is in a state of telepathic rapport with baby Nathan Christopher, and she is trying to track him. She knows demons have him, and she's having a horrible time controlling this. Remember, Jean's had very little access to her telepathy since coming back to life since being found by the Fantastic Four, and it's only now just sort of starting to kick back on, and not really voluntarily. And so, you know, things are kind of freaking out. She's mad at Scott for making the situation occur at all. But they are saved by the bell. And by bell, I mean possessed airliner that crashes into their own plane, sending them careening into the city. Hank and Bobby see the optic blast, go to help. Basically, there's a big drag-out brawl between the current four members of X-Factor and a bunch of demons. They're not doing so hot until... Well, the demons are falling in from the portal that opened in Exterminators and New Mutants. The portal opening over New York is one of the events that you can use to track chronology in Inferno. And this is the point in X-Factor where that portal opens and demons start to pour into New York City. So X-Factor is fighting these demons and they get a last-minute rescue from their buddy Warren Worthington, who's decided... I could mope, or I could kill a whole lot of demons. And this is a triumphant moment for X-Factor. It's the last triumphant moment they're going to have for a while. But it is the band getting back together, really, for the first time since Angel's death. It's the five of them going off to be heroes. 
Yeah, and there's this great, like, you know, big damn hero last panel as Jean talks about, you know, her connection with Nathan Christopher. He's scared, Scott. So talk to him, Jeannie. You have all of us to support you now. Let him know we'll support him. Tell him his daddy knows where he is now, that he loves him, that he's coming to save him. I'll say we'll all save him, all of us together. And this is the first time the five of them have ever been side by side out of the middle of a fight with Apocalypse. Like, this is the first time they've voluntarily gotten together to be the heroes we know they can be. The O5 is back together, and it's awesome. Oh, man. Walter Simonson does the heroic charge panel so well. Like, this is something that he has mastered and mastered and mastered in Thor. And I gotta say, actually, some of the fighting desperately against impossible odds sequences in here and the hordes remind me intensely of my very favorite of his Thor stories or some moments in it. Oh, yeah. There's a scene where a skyscraper turns into a, like a river of demons that is straight out of the fire demons that are after the Corbinites in the Beta Ray Bill story. It's I, beautiful. I was actually thinking of Gellerbrew, but... Ah, uh, yes. The Bridge of Gellerbrew. Yeah. Yeah, and they do indeed charge into battle. And there's this wonderful scene of Jean telekinetically pulling Iceman and Cyclops and Beast into the sky with Archangel next to them and these demons streaming down toward them from the sky themselves as Nastier has baby Nathan Christopher up there. And you can basically hear the swelling John Williams soundtrack behind this. Unfortunately for X-Factor, they are in Inferno. Nastier, between issues, is infected with the techno-organic virus and X-Factor flies to attempt to face against him and they can't. He is too powerful. He's got too many demons working for him, and they effectively overwhelm X-Factor completely. And a rescue comes from a rather unexpected place, that being Madeline Pryor holding the baby, because X-Factor, they're hers. They don't belong to Nastier, they belong to her. So I think, you know, this is two characters I usually read, so Miles, you want to take over Cyclops for now? I'll do it. You have little Christopher. Madeline, what, what do you want with him? Cyclops is so much more dramatic when you play him. Everyone is. We don't call him Christopher anymore. His name is Nathan. You always hated that name, didn't you? The little bully at the orphanage, as I remember. You have no right to him. You abandoned us. I thought you were dead. You'd like that, wouldn't you? You hoped I was dead. Gone so you could enjoy your one true love and peace. You're such a pathetic fool. You don't know what you've tossed away. What have you become? What you have made of me, you and others. God, Jay, I think you mentioned that she's like the last person in on a joke at her own expense. Yeah, you talked about Madeline and sort of the whole rejection of motherhood and the revenge thing is playing out in sort of stereotypical ways. And for me, what Madeline reads as is, yeah, the last person in on what she learns has been a protracted joke at her expense. You know, she has been basically told everything you believed, everything you thought was genuine in your life was constructed, was a lie, was manipulation. You know, you existed for this purpose. You are fake in the ways that all of the people you have always been jealous of are real. Like, this is every worst anxiety and worst fear confirmed. And her response to it is rage, but also just intense, and I think entirely justified in her context, paranoia. And this accentuated when she realizes that Jean Grey, her rival, has a psychological telepathic connection to her son. And so she says, screw it, and tries to kill X-Factor, only to be prevented from doing so by Nastier himself. So Nastier gives a couple reasons for doing this. Ultimately, his purpose here is that he is trying to get Madeline angry enough that she will voluntarily sacrifice Nathan Christopher. Nathan Christopher's death will basically spark the full incursion of Limbo into Earth, but it'll take killing a baby that powerful. He's the only one they've got on hand. Madeline's got to do it. She wants revenge. She wants to see the world burn, but she's not angry enough to kill the kid. 
And right now, she's not quite there yet. The thing that's going to have to push her over that edge is she's going to have to eventually settle on it as the best way to get revenge on Scott. And she can't do that if she's already killed him. And so Nastier convinces her that the revenge will be that much sweeter if she breaks Scott Summers and Jean Grey down even more first. X-Factor, of course, confronts her, having been given a chance to do so. So here we are again. All of you against me, like it was from the beginning. One big, happy mutant family. I never had a family. Even the illusion of family was stolen from me. And she just slams them into the ground hard enough to leave a crater. They'd be dead if it weren't for Jean's telekinesis. Nastier was right. A deferred revenge will be the sweetest. I swear to you that I will shatter your cozy mutant family. Brother will kill brother. And I, personally, will sacrifice your son. And then things get weird, just as she's going full supervillain. Suddenly, she's in that green jumpsuit we've seen before, the one she wore in Australia. Suddenly, she's just holding a normal baby at the edge of this crater, screaming about how Cyclops was trying to steal her son. Asking him, why is he trying to take their baby? And it's unclear for a moment why, until we see who's coming up behind X-Factor. And we see Wolverine's hand on Jean's shoulder, making sure she's real. And that is basically the halfway point of the X-Men X-Factor Inferno as the two teams meet up and we realize, oh, this is not going to go well. Nothing good is going to come of this. I mean, a few really good issues are going to come of this. Well, that too. I mean, as we know, the X-Men are at their best when their situation is at its worst. But yeah, there's just been so much buildup and so much buildup and just the sense of tension and of consequence and of stakes to all of this. It's huge because these plot lines they've been building for literally years. And everything that's happening makes sense. Everything that's happening comes from each little step that's occurred along the way. Yeah, and I gotta say, man, Madeline gets such a bad rap as a villain. Like, the Goblin Queen is so much seen as character assassination. And I felt that way the first time I read this. And going back through it, I feel so differently. It feels like such an earned climax. I completely agree, yeah. Like, I have Madeline Pryor going through X-Men in this much depth for the podcast. She's actually become one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise. Oh, God, easily. Yeah. So, we'll be back for the second half of the Madeline Pryor End of Inferno next week. For now, you've got questions. Faked Tales asks on Tumblr, If you could use your demonic powers to animate any object, what would it be? So I would say the huge color copier that keeps breaking down outside my department at Dark Horse, but I'm pretty sure it would just be exactly the same, just with a little more profanity and a face. So I'll go ahead and say the crosswalk signals in Portland where Seriously? we Seriously? Yeah, right now they say, wait, in that creepy voice when you press the button. And with this, it'd let them say things like, come on, walk into traffic, human. Show those cars who's boss. It would be okay, great. no, no, Miles. See, if you do that, everyone will die. Like, seriously, you're thinking of it entirely in terms of demeanor. Like, they would also push people into traffic. Well, you know. So I would actually go with smartphones here because it would basically anthropomorphize the love-hate relationship I already have with them. All right. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, who would be better at doing your taxes, Iceman or Cyclops? Because, I mean, Bobby is an accountant, but Scott seems way more meticulous. Iceman. I seriously doubt that Cyclops has ever actually done taxes in his life. He has basically spent all of adulthood as part of the X-Men. He's only been independent from them for brief periods of time and then almost always attached... Um, usually married to someone who has a lot more experience as an individual living apart from a superhero team. When he's back and running the Institute, again, it's almost always with someone who has much, much more administrative, bureaucratic, and financial experience, Warren Worthington, Emma Frost, and so forth. So yeah, I will go with Iceman on this one. But at the same time, Cyclops would do all of the research necessary. So he'd be like going through huge reams of regulations and rules and stuff. 
And I guess while he did, the Marauders or Acolytes or someone would probably blow up the X Mansion again. So in conclusion, Iceman. Okay. Now, we are a listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from fictional characters. I believe in the spirit of the crossover, I am turning things over today to the one and only Goblin Queen. Matt and Kurt Connor, I've seen you before, cosplaying as Madrox duplicates, before everything changed, before the betrayals, before this island ignited. Care to come along and feel that fire? I know a thing or two about brothers, after all. Change into some ragged black, take my hands, and let's watch this world burn. Wow, you went super creepy for that one. Well, you know, Goblin Queen. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, everything, everything, comes to a head. As X-Factor and the X-Men have the worst meet-cute ever, the best-laid plans of demons and men come crashing down. And fate's got nothing on Madeline Pryor. Pryor.